Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa. This is Vesak, the Buddha's birth, death, and enlightenment day. And this is a major event in Asia, perhaps the most important Buddhist holiday and religious celebration. Throughout Southeast Asia, where Theravada Buddhism is the dominant religion, people come to the monasteries in great numbers, and there are various ceremonies and festivals carried out, and there's a beautiful symmetry between the lay sangha and the monastic sangha. The lay people often bring candles, incense, and flowers to the monastery, and the monks do chanting and offer meditation. And in, in the forest tradition, the people come for an all-night sit as well. Uh, this involves the whole spectrum of the population, to, including children. So this is quite an event, and perhaps the children would come for some of the chanting, and the families, etc., would circumambulate a, a stupa or a Buddha image three times, a clockwise motion with candles, incense, and flowers, and perhaps chanting during the entire ceremony. This would be in the evening with the full moon. So this is what the big clock of the Buddhist sasana is. The sasana is the enduring sort of institution which persists through time, the Buddha established a sasana of kind of like the equivalent of a church. And this sasana is, has special ways of marking time. And in Buddhism, it's the lunar calendar. So the full moon and the new moon in this dispensation, this sasana, is the marker for monastics and lay people. Buddhism predates Christianity, and so the Buddha is sometime in the 5th century BC. We're still not sure of his dates. Now, this uncertainty about his dates may just be a, a modern neurosis about getting everything precise, or perhaps even a modern tendency to extreme skepticism, because these dates have been preserved for a long time in the East, and sometimes they're quite surprised that anybody is questioning the dates of the Buddha. But in a recent time with archaeology and scholars, etc., questioning this, the dates have been recently sort of affixed to about 480 BC to 400 BC. So the Buddha lived 80 years. And uh, according to the Vesak tradition, he's born on the full moon of May, he is enlightened on the full moon of May, and he dies on the full moon of May. Now, I suggest that it doesn't really matter, but it's a nice convenient package for remembering these important events. There are other dates for the Buddha which make him earlier in time. And I'm rather interested in this historical question at the moment. If we set him at 480 BC to 400 BC, 
he lines up exactly with Socrates, almost identical with Socrates, a few, maybe 10 years out of Socrates. But if he precedes that, he's older. And it might be of, it might be a tendency in the West to kind of distort these dates. The original dates are older. The actual annual date is not so important. It's the, the lunar date that matters. Anyway, to bundle these together is very interesting. Two of these things, two of these events happen to all of us, birth and death. So the birth and death of the Buddha is really something not extraordinary. It's simply what happens to all beings. Every being in existence has been born. And with that birth comes a little date stamp on your forehead, which means you are going to expire as well. The extraordinary element in this is the enlightenment. I think, though, it's important that he is born and dies. That why is this important is because in history, before the time of the Buddha and throughout the world, they had some mythological characters. There was a lot of deities, etc., that were never born into the human realm, and they never died in the human realm. They were in other dimensions. They were mythical beings or beings from other spheres of consciousness. So about this time in human history, we see the advent of a human. Being born as a human through his mother and spending a, a lifetime of 80 years and dying. And the details both of his birth and his death are recorded. And this is important that he is a human because the teachings of the Buddha are expressly irrelevant to humans. He is born as a human and he dies as a human. What the difference is, is the quality of consciousness. And that quality of consciousness arises only on his enlightenment. So he's perhaps 35 years old at the time of his enlightenment, and he spends the next 45 years attempting to explain it in a beneficial way to the rest of the world. He, in fact, has fairly modest expectations. He doesn't say that his dispensation will create universal salvation for all beings or anything like this. That kind of talk does develop later on in Buddhism and as a feature of some religions. We all want universal, everybody wants to be saved and, and be well and to understand. But the Buddha is saying, unfortunately, that is not possible. That it's a matter of individuals uh, attending closely, reflecting and purifying their mind. And in, only in that condition will they attain this sense of liberation from the distresses of existence. So this is actually a, a difficult teaching. Prior to the Buddha, you find throughout the entire world, and I've spent quite a bit of time now looking at the history, comparative histories of the Western world at the time of the Buddha and of the Eastern world. So we have right from China all the way out to Egypt. We have a very fairly developed civilization, and they all seem to be going through a, quite a strong change in the 5th century BC. 
But the Buddha is presenting a teaching which is not found anywhere else in any of these civilizations. It is extremely focused on individual effort. And this, in fact, may be the point in human history where the modern individual is invented or discovered. What it is that the Buddha is teaching is an advocacy of personal responsibility. Before this, basically the entire world is run by tribal consciousness, racial consciousness. You don't have a personal ethical standard. Your standard of behavior is determined by the community around you. You are nothing but a, a small element of this community. These are extended families. They are racial quite often, tribal and communal, and the individual is immersed in this and doesn't make individual choices. They have to accept the decision of the culture around them. And these decisions are quite spectacularly savage sometimes. Wars, and all kinds of wars are fought and the justification of these wars are not ethical. They are land grabs and fights over bodies of water, etc. You will see this rampantly throughout the ancient world. And of course you see it right up to this day. We have communities of where the young people are drafted into the military and they go without knowing why and understanding why they're sent off to fight these wars, etc. So the Buddha is saying, you are not just a mere cog in the wheel. You are actually an individual who makes decisions and these ethical decisions determine your well-being in the future. And whether you like it or not, you are responsible for your decisions. You can't just hand it off to somebody else. And you can't hand it off to another dimension either, like a transcendent dimension, another spiritual dimension, a god or gods. Before the Buddha, one of the ways of dealing with this world around one was through sacrifice. So it was a common idea that you could either, you could give a sacrifice to the gods and expiate your, your sins. You could be delivered from your sins by giving a sacrifice. You could influence your future, increase your well-being through sacrifices. Earlier on in history, it was human sacrifices. Remember, sacrifices have to be something valuable that you sacrifice. So you'll see it all the way around the world. Even up to, oh, a thousand years ago, the practice of human sacrifice, in order to accomplish some bargaining with the, with the universe. This changed in many cultures to animal sacrifice as a bargaining tool. This the Buddha dismissed as completely irrelevant and misguided. Now that's a major event in history. That is the invention of the modern world. You now have an ethical individual who must take responsibility for their actions and he dismisses any kind of relationship to the universe through the death and destruction of beings through sacrifice. 
This is not how it's done, he says. You are bound by ethics, and that determines your future. So, in brief, the summary of the Buddha's teachings is do no evil, do the good, purify the mind, the Buddha says, and he says, this is the teaching of all Buddhas. Now, this is also another important statement. He is not the only Buddha that has ever existed. He says, in time, in the distant past, and in the future, other Buddhas will arise. And this word Buddha, this we give him a title, the Buddha, is primarily this idea of one who is awakened to reality, who has awakened to the major issues of reality and found a solution to them. So this is a spiritual or religious awakening. It's a moral awakening. It's an emotional awakening. It's insight into the nature of beings who are thrown into this existence. So this is the nature of being born. You are kind of, you arrive and you are thrown into existence and now have to face the hard facts of existence with a vulnerable body and vulnerable emotional structures. And if these emotional structures are misguided in any way, great suffering can occur. So the Buddha's primary solution, his inquiry is, in, can we reduce this unnecessary suffering? Is there a way of seeing reality by means of which we reduce suffering? And so he sorts it out for himself, and it's quite, a, quite an endeavor. His type of sacrifice is actually the six or seven years of deep seeking during which he undergoes many austerities and abuses of the body as well. And we're fortunate that he uh, did persist in this because at the end of it, this is the night of the enlightenment. And this is something to contemplate on Vesak particularly, to bring yourself to this moment of enlightenment. Remember the birth is just a birth, just like any other human. The death is just the death just like any other human. It's the enlightenment factor that is the difference, that sets something in motion. We, sometimes we say the wheel is set in motion. A wheel rolls through time. And this is this extremely pertinent experience that he has. And it, what's important about it is that he gives up futile efforts to deal with this problem of suffering in life. And one of the futile ways is through self-punishment, the punishment of the body, austerities, and sacrifices of the body, sacrifices of other lives, of humans, of animals, rites and rituals attempting to placate the gods, etc., are also set aside, cast aside as, as mere impediments to liberation. And that's very nice. And on that night, he establishes himself in the middle way. He says that you will not find ultimate gratification either in sensory indulgence, the experience of beautiful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, or ideas, 
And you won't find it in harsh religious austerities, spiritual practices which blame the body for um, the impediments. You won't find it in rites and rituals attempting to placate the gods. You won't find it by deliverance through somebody else lifting your burden of sins from you. You won't find it through any of those means, which is a very beautiful thing to have left us with. It avoids these extremes and gives us something more valuable to look at than the, the trivialities of sensory life. If that's all there is, it's a shallow experience. Certainly uh, preferable to the painful experience, but it's, uh, it's shallow and uncertain and very hard to sustain. So he says, this is not the highest that you can aspire to, please attempt to aspire to higher. So he gives an ultimate inquiry method, investigation to the self. And this is also a great turning point in history, which most philosophies, religions right to this time have not caught up with. And this is the realization that the idea of a substantial, unchanging core element to the human personality is false that all that a human is, the five aspects of a human, of the body, of perceptions, of consciousness, of volitions, of feelings, all of these are flowing processes. And within these processes, nothing of enduring substance is found. This is uh, overthrowing all kinds of theories about what we would call in the West, the soul, the idea of a soul as an enduring, unchanging entity which travels through time and is eternal and immune to the ravages of existence. He says it's not that way. At the same time, it's not the modern idea of annihilation at death. He insists that he personally, in fact, remembers previous lives and sees the fates and futures of beings transposing through time. So there's a continuous process. This is very hard for most people to get their minds around. He is teaching the idea of flow. All is change. All is flux. And this is liberating if one can internalize this. This is not simply an idea, but one has to emotionally practice this until one is in touch with reality of flow, that all things flow, including things that appear to not flow, like solid rock and things like this. But as we know in modern times with science, that everything is in motion. So he wants to bring that into the ordinary person's consciousness. And he leaves these ideas behind. Now, some of these ideas are very hard for ordinary people to grasp, and they do take time and practice. So he organizes a set of people who are willing to spend all their life, all their time investigating this, and that is the Sangha. So this is also a major organizational structure. Why is it, it, there are other structures like this, but they're usually racial 
or caste system structures. The, the Brahmins of the, the caste structure at the time or the tribes have certain classes which you are born into as a priestly class. And they're the performers of sacrifices and rites and rituals. They inherit this. It's not an ethical thing. It's not something that they earn. They're simply born into it. This is a radical, radical change in history. The Buddha abolishes all these requirements, he says. The requirement is that you are a sincere seeker. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what caste you came from. Those are irrelevant to this understanding. That's a radical new form of religious practitioner, spiritual practitioner, and moral leader. So this is the Sangha, both of monks and nuns. And that also is one of the most radical things. The Buddha establishing an order of nuns, 500 BC. So he is fully proclaiming the fact that both men and women can achieve full enlightenment on their own efforts and with the help of the teachers around them, but not by intervention from the deities, not by sacrifice, not by rites and rituals, and not by birth. Can any of this be achieved? It is by individual insight and ethical behavior and it requires none of those things that were thought to be the mechanisms before the time of the Buddha. So we really have the roots of the modern world. We have individuality, we have ethical responsibility, and we have an insistence that the cause and effect in the moral dimension is the cause and resultant of well-being, emotional well-being and happiness, not only for the individual, but also for all societies that are established on those principles. This is a gigantic breakthrough in history. Nothing of this scale has happened before or since. And it's still very pertinent, relevant, up-to-date. And that is why I am giving this talk on this day, the full moon of May, because it is fully translatable into modern times and is still absolutely on the cutting edge. Much of the world, even the modern world, has not caught up to this yet. But as Buddhism advances through the world and through such things as this very process of videos and recordings where we can reach large numbers of people, it spreads and is still a very, very relevant and pertinent and important message. I wish you all well on this day and that you take time to honor and remember the Buddha, but let's hope that you don't leave it at merely honoring and remembering, but that you actually contemplate the instructions left behind, the gifts left behind by the Buddha for your own edification and your alleviation of suffering for you in this life, and that you can share it with others as well. Now, an opportunity for questions and answers. And this is quite delightful because they come from all over the world. Ajahn, our first question is from Anonymous from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 
What makes the Buddha different or special as a religious leader? And why are reflections on the Buddha's birth, enlightenment, and death helpful to us now in the 21st century? The Buddha is a very unique figure in history and very different from other religious teachers. And one of the main features is that Buddhism does not have a reference to God as a creator. Now, in the West and throughout the world, we're familiar with what are called the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And their center and preoccupation is theistic around the nature of God and prophets who interpret God, etc. Buddhism does no such thing. It is what we would say... um, uh, human-centered. The Buddha himself is a human, is not a deity, and he gives advice, which is great emphasis on personal effort and understanding. So the key to salvation, and in, in from a Buddhist point of view, is wisdom, insight, clarity, and ethical behavior. So it distinguishes itself from other teachings in this. It is very similar to perhaps uh, what we refer to as psychology today. Oh, but the problem with psychology is is usually just secular. It doesn't have a transcendent view of things. So Buddhism, although it doesn't refer to God, it is transcendent in its view. It does have a view that there is something beyond this life and that if one does not solve the problems in this life, they will continue in the next. (laughs) The other thing about the Buddha's teaching is that it's not exclusive to any race or caste or even, it's not even a club that you can join except through your own personal initiative and wisdom. So you will see that other religious kind of teachings have a some form of salvation through membership. Buddhism, you can't join this one except through wisdom. And anybody who is wise and kind will have good results. And it doesn't matter what religion they are, where, where they come from on the earth. So this is a very cosmopolitan religion. So the Buddha is also establishing the first mm, religion that's not located anywhere and not racial or cultural. So this is why, in fact, that we are having a worldwide conversation right now and having questions and answers from around the world is because this Buddhism easily transplants and translates into different languages and different cultures and places. The Buddha is unique in this. Now, why do we reflect on the birth, enlightenment, and death? Is that there are many, many aspects to this, but one of them is that he's born as a unenlightened, as an unenlightened human. So he doesn't arrive here already perfected. He's not born perfected. He struggles, he seeks, he makes mistakes. And finally, and at that point, he's referred to as a bodhisattva, an enlightenment-seeking person. 
And then at the age of 35, after six years of rigorous effort, he attains understanding, awakening, enlightenment. At that point, he's called the Buddha. And, the, and Buddha might be translated as, as many of these things, awakened, uh, liberated, that kind of thing. He spends the next 45 years teaching others how to do this, how to see, how to understand, and shapes all of history for the next 25 centuries by doing this. And then he dies as a human does. We have other religious ideas preceding the Buddha where deities arrive from heaven and then they go back to heaven, etc. So the Buddha's death is also called the Parinibbana, the final extinction. And this is a monumental event because he says something just before he passes away. After my death, neither gods nor humans will see me. So this also removes him from a place of uh, a position in the heavens or something like this where you are praying to the Buddha or getting aid from the Buddha and it is somewhere in space and time. This is a very important, uh, meaningful death in that he has left the round of samsara and will not be returning. This is sometimes misunderstood. Uh, there's references to other Buddhas. And some people think, oh, it's the Buddha coming back again. So you get an imposition from Christianity on this, where Jesus will return. The Buddha will not return. The nature of a Buddha at the death of a Buddha called Parinibbana means that that being will not be returning. Other Buddhas may arise, and this is another teaching by the Buddha, which is unique. He's not exclusive in history. There are, have been other Buddhas, and in the future there will be other Buddhas, but they won't be the same Buddha. So we can gain things by looking at his life before he was enlightened, because we can find elements of our own life, the struggles of our own life, in his life before enlightenment that he was raised in a family and he had to be taken care of and that he had a childhood and an education and he had relatives. All of these things are important. So what's important is his birth, his life as a bodhisattva up to 35, his enlightenment, and then his life as a Buddha after that, and then his parinibbana, his death. So not only are his birth, enlightenment, and death important, but his whole life story is important as well. Ajahn, our next question is from Upasaka Arichita from Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Many sculptures of the Buddha show him with a hand gesture of touching the earth. What is the significance of the Buddha calling upon the earth as a witness to his enlightenment? And what does this particular act mean for his disciples? It's very interesting. And this brings in the sense of nature at the time of the Buddha. The 
absolute intimacy of the Buddha's relationship to the earth, and in fact, the, the tree that he is sitting under. And at the time, and before Buddhism as well, the nature of the planet and the vegetation and the animals in it were a very important part of how to relate to reality. We're in a time of science when uh, we don't regard the earth as, as anything but a kind of a ball of molecules. And this has a detrimental effect on our very environment and also perhaps on our spiritual well-being. We no longer relate to our environment with great friendship and respect. And so the, it's a kind of um, personalizing the earth and embracing the earth and, and a sense of friendship and support and that the, the earth is a living being in a sense. I don't know how we can look around on the earth and not think it's a living being look what is coming out of the earth all the time, living beings. It is the nature of the earth to populate. It is the nature of the earth to people, to tree, to animal. <laughs> it is the nature of the earth to run with water. And so it is infused in us. And of course, we are fed by the earth. We are made of the earth, and we're in continuous interaction with the earth. So this is how they thought of this at the time. So the Buddha, making this gesture, pointing at the ground, is calling the earth to witness. And the, earth, the witness is because there's a skepticism, an element of skepticism, of questioning. Are you really free? Have you really solved the problem? This uh, being that is asking the question is called Mara. And Mara can be thought of in many ways. It is our own doubt. It is our own wonder at how, how well we have resolved our issues. And there's an external sense of agency that questions the possibility of this, that doesn't want such a, a breakthrough to happen, doesn't want a solution to the primary issue. And so the Buddha is calling on the very earth itself, the vast earth itself, to witness, no, this is a fact. The very earth knows this that this is a fact. So this is something that you can use in your, in your practice is to try to get back into a friendly, warm, personal relationship with nature around you, the planet itself, and also this realization of the Buddha that he managed to do this and set up a path so others could do this. And this is to be seriously taken up. It's not only him that can do this. He's not unique. That's one of the important things is he's not unique. It's a shared opportunity. And to ground yourself in this reality. So the this is the connection to the earth, the grounding of this with reality. 
Ajahn, our next question is from Sean from Melbourne, Australia. When bowing or doing prostrations, I have natural positive feelings, such as those of humbleness, love, compassion, surrender, presence, respect, and calm. But I also have negative emotions, such as unnaturalness, ego, anxiety, self-judgment, feeling judged or embarrassed, somewhat like a cultural intruder. I wish I could bow to everyone all the time, but I realize in Western society this would be strange. Why does it have to be like this? Bowing has so many positives. Dear Venerable, please comment on this. Why does there have to be a right time and place for this in the Western culture, but in Asian culture it is acceptable all the time? Well, this is very interesting. It, it used to be part of the culture. Uh, you can see legacies in the West of this culture. Many decades ago, when I was a musician, I was a classical musician. And one of the things that classical musicians do, and still to this day, is they, they come out and bow to the audience at the beginning of the concert and at the end of the concert. And it's just part of the tradition. Nobody finds that odd or strange. You see in Western culture that the bow, in, including a greeting to each other, in the 19th century, people bowed to each other, curtsied, bowed, and they also did this in church. They knelt in church, and monks in the West also fully prostrate themselves face first on the floor without the, the least self-consciousness. This has passed away from the culture as we became more of a secular culture. And we introduced this idea of everybody's equal and this idea of bowing to anybody is kind of deferential. This is unfortunate because everybody isn't equal, not in their understanding, not in their knowledge. And so we, we uh, had this sense of how to enter into humility and to show appreciation with the whole body. So the, the bowing is an appreciation gesture with the whole body. And it is found also all through the Middle East and into Christianity. Islam, of course, bows, Judaism does, and also Christianity. And by the way, it's quite possible that it spread through Buddhism. Buddhism spread out from India, where this was a common uh, bodily gesture, and spread out through the Middle East. And Buddhism came to the Middle East hundreds of years before Christianity and also many hundreds of years before Islam. They may have picked it up from Buddhism, the Bao. So it's a, it's a kind of... Uh, wholehearted gesture, whole body gesture, a very beautiful thing. But as I say, we're, I'm born and raised in this culture too, and I felt a little awkward <laughs> about it as well. It, it uh, probably won't make a return in uh, secular society, but it uh, certainly should be, you should feel comfortable about it when you enter a Buddhist monastery, you should abandon all self-consciousness and think, 
thank goodness I can just say, there are things higher than my understanding that I am so grateful and appreciative of. I would I have no hesitation in bowing deeply to it, to touch my forehead on the ground in utter respect and gratitude that somebody has taken the time and the care to pass on liberating knowledge to me. So this is a heartfelt, whole-body gesture. And I should say, we're in the West, we claim to be kind of free, but we're actually very self-conscious. And we've got a conflict with this idea of bowing to anything. But that's a big problem because there's, you just don't know enough to be independent and upright all the time. There are people who know more than you and will communicate this to you. But not if you don't have, if you're not open and respectful. So this is also when you enter a monastery, you open yourself and show respect for uplifting knowledge. And that's what the bow is really all about. Ajahn, our next question is from Mark from Portland, Oregon, United States. In Buddhist cultures, there are often celebrations and festivals of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha that involve whole families or communities. I have kids and family members that aren't interested in meditation, but would certainly connect to the wider message of the Buddha. On this occasion of Vaisakh, can you speak to what it means to celebrate the Buddha in our culture in this time? Yes, that's something we need to transport into this culture, is to have an access to it with people of all ages and people who may not be meditation practitioners. So Buddhism has come to the West in a very strange way. It came through first very curious academics who wanted to know what the Buddha thought, but there's no, no kind of structure or form for devotion or faith or meditation. Eventually, curious types went to the East and entered into monasteries and they began to practice meditation. And when they came back, they thought, we'll transmit Buddhism through meditation to Western audiences. And, but that was exclusively adults and adults who were quite willing to try something different so it wasn't uh, it doesn't appeal to the general culture and it was strictly meditation which is a very small portion of the population that, that meditates finally after a period of time the westerners went and became monks and nuns and immersed themselves in the culture and they brought back and established monasteries so then they had the opportunity to bring Westerners into a monastery and show them more elements, uh, more of a cultural element as well. And we have about 35 branch monasteries around the world that are Western Theravada monks who were trained in uh, mostly in Thailand, some in uh, Sri Lanka, Burma as well. And uh, many of those monasteries try to open to the full spectrum of the of the culture, including whole families. Amaravati and Chithurst and Abhayagiri and so forth have done a marvelous job of 
opening to whole families. And of course, many of these families are expatriate Asian families who feel very comfortable in taking their children to the monastery. Others are Westerners who came at first through meditation, and they find it quite beautiful, the atmosphere in a, in a religious kind of festival or celebration of the birth, death, and enlightenment of the Buddha, and other uh, ceremonies and uh, activities that are found in uh, monasteries that don't involve meditation, but might involve chanting and the sharing of meals and talks and discourses. Uh, we at Birkin are quite remote, but we do have visits, and sometimes we have up to 50 or 60 people, um, whole families coming to uh, bring food to the monastery, and they bring their children, and it's a special kind of atmosphere because that tends to conflict with silent meditation retreats. So you either you're doing a silent meditation retreat or you've got a family coming. Uh, you can't really do both. <laughs> so when we have extended families coming, 40, 50, 60 people with children, babies, grandmothers, grandpas, everybody, then there's no silent meditation at that time. It's a, but there will be a, a, a extended Dhamma talk. And when I give the Dhamma talk, I try to especially talk to the children. The parents are usually, they've already heard much Dhamma before from many monks. But the children, they're often being raised in a Western culture. And I look something like the teacher at school and so forth. So I have a unique way of, of communicating with them. And so this is the transposition of the cultural element, which is good for everybody. And they also take the precepts. So they... They learn as children to be virtuous and upright and practice generosity at least. And they're familiar with the Buddha. So this may come later in life when they have, have encounter the difficulties of life. It suddenly may come back to them how to deal with these things. And, if, and at least it may come back that there is a place where you can actually go and get advice about how to function in life well. And that is a monastery. So this is, it broadens out into the whole culture. Now, strangely, as we're talking here, this is unique in history. I'm talking to thousands of people around the world in all kinds of different countries and so forth. And they can sit down with their children and listen to this talk in front of a television screen or a computer screen. So this is also unique. This is a this is a, a huge possibility of outreach, uh, etc. So all of these things will be brought into the West, and I'm very impressed by the skills of the other monasteries, particularly because we're a very remote monastery, and and many of the other branch monasteries that we're associated with are closer to major population centers, and they really have made great effort to welcome whole families and give children's teachings and introduce the ceremonies, etc. So uh, all of these things are um, appreciated. And I think the whoever's listening should also appreciate how much effort is taken for the monastic community to do this. We have gone out of our culture 
spent many years in Asia, training in very austere monasteries, very demanding monasteries, and then made the journey back with nothing to our home countries or cultures, and starting from scratch and having to find a place to live and to build and to make and to educate and to train. All of these things have taken decades and decades and decades, now really at least half a century or so of consistent effort on the part of the monks who went and trained there and brought it back. So it's inspiring in both directions. We are inspired enough by the teachings and the benefits we experienced to want to share it and to broaden it out. At the same time, we have a lot of demands on us to continue the practice, to find time and silence for our own meditation, at the same time, bring it back out into the culture. So this, this very process here of recording this, videoing it and putting it up on the World Wide Web is part of the part of this process as well. Our next question is from Gary from Kamloops, British Columbia, Canada. In one Dhamma talk, you referred to the later in life stage as the quote prone age. Have you seen as people get older and lives become slower and simpler that there is increased opportunity to grow and deepen one's Dhamma practice? Or has the reverse most often proven true, that the physical and mental challenges of advancing years can undermine efforts to make appreciable progress on the Buddhist path? That's an interesting point. And and I think Western psychology is, is coming around to what Buddhism knew a long time ago, that the brain, what we call the brain or the mind, the brain is plastic, not made of plastic, but it is, it is trainable and can grow and learn new things at any stage of life. There was a sense in Western psychology that at a certain age, your, your growth, you know, your brain development has stopped. This has never been the case from a Buddhist point of view. So we have a number of examples in the teachings of the Buddha, where men became ordained late in life, 70 years old, 80 years old, even 100 years old, they went forth as monks from the household life to the monastic life. And not only did they do that, but they attained enlightenment. And so the possibility of enlightenment is still there at any age. So one should not uh, I think that the culture receives, the, the people in the culture receive messages from the culture, the presumptions and beliefs of the culture. And if the culture is saying, oh, well, you know, you just take it easy now, your, your growth days are over, your learning days are over, well, maybe you'll believe it, but that's not the attitude. In Thailand, for instance, uh, many uh, men much later in life, after their grandfathers and so forth, they step out of the, the uh, family life and go off to monasteries. You'll also find that in the monasteries that I train in in Thailand, forest monasteries have regular all-night sittings. And that's once a week 
the full moon, the new moon, and the sort of half moon is a time when the monks spent the whole night meditating and the abbot will give a talk and they'll be chanting and so forth and villagers will come and join us. But the average age of those villagers is, I would say, 60 to 80 years old. And the I would say the best meditators there are women in their 70s. <laughs> So the monks have a lot of trouble keeping up with women in their 70s who come and join the, the, the meditation for the entire night. They also have heard many, many discourses over their lives. And they know the Dhamma. And they also know the chants as well. So they can chant along by memory many of these Pali chants. And so, in fact, for Western monks, young Western monks, and many of us were in our 20s or 30s when we became monks and had been raised in the West, an all-night sitting was quite a difficult, demanding situation. And life in a Thai monastery is very demanding, very austere. And one of the kind of uplifts for us was older people, men and women from the village, lay people who joined us and and brought a sense of warmth and their smiles and their own interest in this and support for us as well. So there is no age limit to this. This practice can be taken up at any age and it can be and should be practiced till the last breath of this age into great old age. And as you will see, many monks, monks tend to be the longest lived in, uh, in some of these societies. So there's lots of examples of hundred-year-old monks who are still practicing very sharp. The recently, a Thai forest monk died, and he was the oldest man in the world. He was about 117 years old and had been a monk since he was 20. And he was absolutely lucid and practicing right to the end. He was the abbot of the monastery right till he, his, his death at, just a few years ago at, a, at 117 years old. So yes, age is not an impediment to it. Keep on practicing. Our next question is from Anonymous from Vernon, British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Ajahn. I would like to ask about the development of patience, how it is done, and how to wisely assess if one's efforts in this area are being effective. In these ongoing months of the pandemic, patience is definitely a good skill to have. The Buddha praises patience and says, patience is the highest virtue. Uh, Patience is the center of the practice, really. But we have to understand what patience is. And patience is non-reaction. He gives an example, as the great earth does not react when loathsome things are thrown upon it. So we dump all kinds of things on the earth, but the earth does not react. So in our lives, we are going to experience things that are loathsome, unpleasant. There will be unpleasant speech, unpleasant actions, 
unpleasant thought, unpleasant food, unpleasant weather. <laughs> All kinds of demands will be thrown upon us. And he says, learn not to react in the face of this. And by the way, it's not, it's not um, suppression of your anger or your resentment. It's the absence of anger and resentment. And that's what makes patience so beautiful. So patience is, to be patient is not to be suppressing your hostility or anger. It's not something, can you stand it? <laughs> it's to realize that you have an option. You have an option to not have ill will, hostility, grief, and sorrow in the midst of these things. That there is another way of being, another option, non-reactive. And that you can be at ease and relaxed in the midst of bad weather or even in the midst of being criticized or hostile language or hostile actions, you can learn that you can be at ease and self-contained and relaxed. So we have a worldwide pandemic which keeps surging and falling and surging and falling. It's just about over and then it starts again and so forth and it shuts down everything. Uh, increases political tensions, increases personal tensions, etc. You do not have to suffer in the midst of this. You do have a choice, and patience is one of those choices. Patience is ease in the midst of this situation, this pandemic situation. We in this monastery have been shut down for more than a year in the midst of the pandemic, and we have practiced patience. We also have practiced loving kindness and compassion and generosity. And so it hasn't been a dark thing for us. It has been just another opportunity for peace and well-being in the midst of these things. Ajahn, our next question is from Anonymous from Apt, France. Is Buddhism about happiness or suffering? If it is about happiness... Why did the Buddha choose to frame his teaching around the suffering in life? Good question. I think first thing is that the first noble truth is there is suffering. And I I think a lot of people when they finally when they hear that feel thank goodness somebody said it. <laughs> uh there's a lot of dismissal and pretense that you can somehow if you just arrange the circumstances of life, everybody's going to, it's going to be happy. Everybody's going to be fine. It's superficial. So it's not, Buddhism is not a superficial happiness teaching. There are types of psychology called happiness psychology. We want ultimately to be happy, but it has to be a greatly, a very deep level of understanding that produces this happiness because happiness cannot be subject to the circumstances. It can't be subject to whether you're, you've got a good pension or good food or a good family or any of these things. That's too shallow. It, your, your happiness will evaporate. So the inquiry is, what is the deep cause of our distress? And if we cannot understand and analyze the deep cause of distress, not only the distress now, but also in the future, 
even when circumstances are good, there's still always the potential for distress, problems. So if we look, if we can get down to the real cause of it, then we can uproot that and then the happiness will follow. If we get deep enough into the roots of the problem of suffering, then we can undo it and we float up to the surface. So we're all born with anchors around our feet. And until we get that anchor off, it's a problem. And when we do, by the way, you will float to the surface. Uh, the nature of the mind, when it has solved the basic issue of the cause of uh, sorrow, is that when it's released from that, it, its nature is to be radiant, light, happy, and uh, buoyant. So both of these elements have to be understood. And, and quite often, as it, lots of people, when they first hear about Buddhism, they think it's a very pessimistic philosophy. It's all about suffering. Actually, no, it's all about what it is that is, stands between us and our deep well-being and sustained happiness. If we don't understand what gets between us and happiness, we'll never get the happiness. So that's the relationship of suffering to non-suffering. Non-suffering being a positive thing, like happiness. Ajahn, for our final question, I'd like to ask you about the larger Buddhist view of this pandemic. Are there skillful ways to face the possibilities of sickness, of dying ourselves, or losing our loved ones to this disease? What advice do you have for us at this time? Well, what an appropriate question, because I just happen to have written a book about this. And this book is now, just uh, this week, available on Amazon. So anybody who has access to Amazon, it's in both in the form of a Kindle and also a paperback. And it's called Life is a Near-Death Experience. Skills for Illness, Aging, Dying, and Loss. It is a slender volume. It's about 60 pages long. And I really wrote it for people who are in the midst of illness, aging, dying, and loss. And, you know, sometimes when you're really sick, you don't want to read a 500-page book. You just want the good stuff, <laughs> the good stuff that helps. So I made it short enough so that even when you're not feeling well, it will give you some words to help you change your whole attitude about the nature of illness, aging, dying, loss. And so feel free to download that and read that. We put uh, lots of effort into it and uh, it's, it's something that can be very, very helpful in this, the ordinary experience of, of life. We're in a, a particular time of illness with the pandemic. And also, of course, what goes along with that is, is dying and loss. These are all part of this uh, process. But this pandemic is always there at some level or another in, in your life at some time or another. So this is a, a small booklet for 
understanding this and coming through it without unnecessary excess suffering. So by all means, uh, look into that. So I'd like to leave this for today. This as the, the Buddha's birth, enlightenment and death, Vesak, the full moon of May. And we're celebrating this in, the, in a particular location and a, uh, a particular place on the planet. And you will see some images from our local monastery here. And where the, new, the moon, of course, is full in different places around the planet at different times. But we're all joined in the basic idea and aspiration and inspiration from the, these occasions in the Buddha's life.